Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Well, we are walking through a kind of a brief walk through Malachi. And, um, you know, it's interesting, again, as you think about the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, and then the first, the Gospels in the New Testament, when we kind of reconvene, about 400 years have passed. And as Travis shared last week, some of the words that God gave Malachi to communicate with, with God's people, Israel, that basically Israel's religious and political expression is found polluted and corrupt, according to what God spoke through the prophet Malachi and, and many other prophets that we see in the, in the Old Testament. So then after about 400 years, when Malachi finishes speaking, about 400 years later, 400 years of kind of Israel doing it their way, God speaks through another prophet. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, we are introduced to John the Baptist. And it's really interesting looking at what Malachi says from God to the people of Israel and then what God does with the first prophetic voice since Malachi in 400 years. And I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this, but just take a second and think about what God is doing and what's going on in this moment that John the Baptist comes on the scene. Because John was born into the, a priestly line. John's father was a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. And the way things worked in Israel, that when you, when you are a priest and you have sons, then they become priests as well. They serve in the temple as priests. And it's interesting, and I don't know if you've ever caught this or thought about this, but John the Baptist was supposed to be a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. But he wasn't. John went to the wilderness and came and stayed in the wilderness and preached in the wilderness about repentance and actually continued the very same message that Malachi preached 400 years prior to this. It's interesting to me that, that John pursued not the temple and the platform that the temple allowed him to have, but he went to the wilderness and people had to seek and find him as a voice calling from the wilderness. You know, John's ministry lasted anywhere from six to 18 months. That was the entirety of his public ministry. And then he was arrested and killed. <laughs> but, I, but I find it interesting that, that John chose to follow and obey what God called him to do. And it wasn't to stand in the spotlight, but it was to be a voice crying from the wilderness. And that was the entirety of his preceding the Messiah. 
And, and, and so Jesus' ministry as he goes about and even John preaches preparing the way for Jesus, Jesus' ministry indicts the still polluted and corrupt religious and political structure of Israel and calls God's people to repentance and into a much larger kingdom designed and defined by God himself. And, 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 and so Jesus, he prays in, in, in his, his ministry. And in John 17, we have that prayer recorded where Jesus prays this prayer and he prays for the end of the age. So like we're all over the place right now. We're from Malachi and then go up 400 years to John and Jesus' ministry. And then Jesus prays for something present and something future. And Jesus, in, in, in Hebrews 12, verse 2, we read about Jesus and about this moment that he was willing to sacrifice himself on the cross. And it says, looking to Jesus, that we look to Jesus for our example. And it says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so what is this joy that we're talking about? See, the joy set before Christ that he was willing to give his life was not the joy of us building a paradise before his second coming. But the joy set before him, I mean, I mean, yes, God wants righteous rulers, but that's not why Jesus endured the cross. Jesus went to the cross to purchase a people who would become like him and then rule with him. He didn't purchase a people who would rule on their own and say, thank you for forgiving us, but we can handle it down here. <laughs> Jesus purchased a people through his sacrificial death on the cross to cause a people, us, to become like him and to eventually rule with him. And between Becoming like him and ruling with him, we call others to follow him, to become like him. And again, in, in John 17, here's the evidence that really what Jesus prays is he says, Father, that, that, that they who I'm calling to be like me and who will one day rule with me, that they will be one like we are one. And he says, I've already given them the glory that you've given me. And so basically, what Jesus is praying there, he's praying and saying, here's the evidence that God became man. It's going to be a people. The evidence that Jesus became human and that he was God and that he reigns at the right hand of the Father is a people. A people who are different from all other people. What's the evidence of the gospel? You know, the, the easy answer, well, the Bible is the evidence of the gospel. Yeah, that's part of it. But what did Jesus say is the evidence of the gospel that he brought to us? The evidence the son asked for was that a people so substantially different, even in the midst of our weakness, that the world would look at them and say, God did this. That is the only explanation, that these people can be the people that they are. There is no human explanation for their unity, 
and their humility and their sacrifice, but that God did this. That is the, that is the evidence that the son, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah prayed for, for the world. Kind of the question that that leads us to is what is the world thinking right now based on what they see? Are we the evidence that Jesus prayed for? Or are we a hurdle to the gospel in the way we live and in the way we talk and in the way we express ourselves and in the way we interact with one another? And it's so easy for us to, to, to act like Israel did and kind of be the same as they were. And, and you know, a verse posted on Facebook does little to tell the world that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. My love and my respect and my humility toward you when we disagree and to the global body of Christ is the evidence of the gospel that Jesus asked for. That's the hard work that Jesus calls us to. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn to Malachi chapter three. We're gonna go through Malachi three and four. And so we're, gonna, we're not gonna get super down into the detailed weeds, but we, we will get a pretty good idea of, of what God is doing and what he intends to do. And so Malachi chapter three Starting in verse one, I'm gonna read. Malachi says this, he says, behold, on behalf of God, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of, of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years." Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed." So, so, so Malachi speaks on behalf of God, speaks the words that God asked him to speak. And he says this, he says, behold, I send. The I that's sending in verse one is God, Jehovah, Yahweh, is sending a messenger. And he says, I send a messenger, which we know to be, who is that messenger? It's the guy I just talked about, John the Baptist. The one who comes before the promised one who prepares the way. And then he says, for the Lord you seek. Who is the Lord you seek? 
It is that Messiah that, that Israel had been seeking and waiting for and wanting and, and, and hoping. The Lord you seek is Jesus, the Son of God. And so, and so, it's, so it's so interesting how, how, how he begins and just says, Behold, I, God, send my messenger, John, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come, Jesus Christ. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. And, and, then, he, and then he goes on and he says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And he says, he is like a refiner's fire. And, 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 and basically what, what he says is, is that, that this, this time will be a time of refining because we are by definition impure, rebellious, sinful, immature, and foolish. <laughs> and so we need refining. We need to be refined. And it's interesting because we think, okay, well, well how, bad, how bad are we? Well, let's look at Israel, and let's just look at Israel and how they responded to Malachi and the words that he, that he shared from God to them. In chapter one, it starts with this. God says, I have loved you. And what does Israel say? They say, how have you loved us? And then God says, you've despised my name. And what does Israel respond with? Well, how have we despised your name? And then God says to Israel, you've offered polluted offerings. And Israel's response is, how have we polluted you? Do you see what's happening here? There's, 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 there seems to be a, a structure that's developing. And I don't know, have you ever experienced this with someone when, and, and I don't know, I think in parenting it's a big thing. But in relationships, it's a big thing. In humanity, it's a big thing. Where you say something to someone, hey, you've really disappointed me. How have I disappointed you? Or you, you've really upset me. How did I upset you? <laughs> or you weren't on time. How was I not on time? I mean, it's, we, we kind of respond in these ways that is very similar. Well, it keeps going. It's, it's not just that. And then, then even God says through, through Malachi, he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And Israel comes back with words and they say, how have we wearied you? <laughs> I mean, that's almost ironic, isn't it? <laughs> You've wearied me with your words. Well, how with our words that we're using right now, have we wearied you? How about those words right there? <laughs> And then God says, he says, return to me and I will return to you. And Israel responds in Malachi by saying, how shall we return to you? <laughs> this seems exhausting, doesn't it? <laughs> and, and then God says, you are robbing me. And again, what do you think Israel would respond in character? How are we robbing you? <laughs> and then God says, you have spoken against me. Again, let's just turn it around. How have we spoken against you? This is, this is almost unbelievable, the behavior of Israel. But it's not that unlike the way we often respond to God when God places things in our path 
to guide us and direct us where he wants us to go. And God says things like that. And, and, and it's interesting because we kind of wonder, uh, what, why, why, has, why didn't God just start over? <laughs> I mean, there's a number of, 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 of points in the Old Testament that God starts over that seems like God does kind of a do-over. And so Malachi, he's telling all these things and Israel's responding every single time in an exhausting way. But look at, look at verse six. Look at, what, look at what he says in verse six. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. That's why God doesn't abandon us. Uh, God doesn't abandon his people. Because you see, God is an unchanging covenant keeper. God made a covenant with Israel that they would be his people. And, and God, through the sacrifice of Jesus, his death on the cross and his raising from the dead and his ascending into heaven, Jesus made a covenant with us. Those who have come to him for forgiveness and have surrendered their lives to Jesus and commit to following him, then Jesus makes a covenant with them so that, so that he will not abandon. God is an unchanging covenant keeper. Notice he says at the very beginning of all this, the very first lines in Malachi are, I have loved you. And we talked a couple weeks ago about how that was not only I have loved you, but is I do love you and I will love you. And so God says that to them. And, and then it says God is a refiner's fire. And he says, he says that, that there are, he gives this list, which maybe in today's modern language is kind of sounds like a funny list or a weird list, or, but it says he will, he will be a swift witness against sorcerers. Basically, those who don't recognize God's place in the world. God is sovereign. That they look to other things for their sustenance and their happiness. They look to other gods. They look to other idols. They look to other things. But God will deal with the sorcerers. It says he will deal with, with it says he will deal with the adulterers or, or those who do not pursue him solely and those who wrong other image bearers with what they take that they don't have any right to take. And then he says, those who, who swear falsely. Like, it, it feels like it's getting a little bit more intense for us, doesn't it, in this list? Like, none of, I, I would guess that none of you would, would be self-confessed sorcerers. And, and really, I mean, and again, we can, we can, we've, we've done a great job in our society of defining adultery in a lot of different ways. But then it gets to swear falsely that feels a little bit more mainstream and mainline. But he says he'll deal with them in the same bucket that he deals with the sorcerers. 
And, 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 and then he, he goes on and he says, he says, uh, not only that, but, but, but he says, um, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, those who take advantage of others, maybe because they have the power to do so or that those people are ignorant enough to be taken advantage of. He says, the widow and the fatherless, those who in that society are most vulnerable. And then he says, those who thrust aside the sojourner, God, God talks about the sojourner in Israel. Those are those who are not from Israel, but come into Israel. And he teaches them how to treat those people. And he says, and, and those who don't fear me. So he's got this list, this, this pretty all-inclusive list of, of, of those that are being refined by his fire and some who will be consumed. But you see, what I love about what, what Malachi says about God, what God says about himself is this, that God is a refining fire. He is not a wildfire. See, a wildfire has no intent. It just burns everything. Sometimes it skips something, but there's no reason it skips something. You know, if you've ever, I mean, we, we've had the experiences with wildfires in California and you see uh, different towns that all the, all the houses are burned up in a neighborhood, but there's a random house here and there and here that's not burned up. Why? There's no reason for that. Because a wildfire just burns without prejudice, without intent, but God is a refiner's fire, which has intent and specificity. But there's a reality that there will be those who are consumed by the fire of God because they've chosen to reject him and to rebel against him. And they've chosen the way of rebellion and disobedience. But, but, but I think that's something that we, we can remember and we can take that God is this refiner's fire. He's, intent, he's intentional with us. Malachi continues in verse seven. And he says this, he says, from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and, and contributions? You are cursed with a curse for robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and the vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. It's interesting that so often we, we read this and we read about tithes and offerings and, and we limit this to only being about money but sometimes money is not just about money and it points to something far deeper. And so really what, what, what he's accusing Israel of doing is not just robbing and keeping things for themselves, which belong to God anyway, 
Because when we give to God, we're just giving back what he already owns. But what he's really doing here is saying, where is your trust? You see, you can know where your trust is placed by where you invest and find your security. We are such a materialistic culture in society. It's interesting, you can pretty much predict how people will vote except when money's at stake because people who claim to have convictions about voting will more or less vote whatever will keep their stuff safe from their perspective. And we have a really um, an amazing ability to tolerate lots of other wrongs as long as our stuff is safe. And, 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 so, and so really, if my way of life can be completely upended by events or by people or by institutions, then it's possible that my way of life is not surrendered to God. And that's what he's saying to Israel, that, that they have been worried about themselves and they have been looking to their own best interest and their own best benefit. And God says, you're robbing me. You're not placing your trust in me. When he says, he says, test me and, and see if I open the floodgates of heaven. What he's saying is, trust me and see that I am sufficient and enough to take care of you. You see, when we keep from God, it means that we don't trust him. And in order to obey him, we have to trust him, don't we? When have you ever listened to somebody you don't trust? <laughs> Far less obey someone you don't trust. And you so, see, when, when we keep from God, we set ourselves up to disobey. We set ourselves up for disobedience. Malachi continues in verse 13, he says this, he says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? They're saying, what does it benefit us that we even obey you? He says, and now we call the arrogant, blessed, evildoers, not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And as, 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 as he's speaking, there are those within Israel who, who fear God. And in verse 16, it says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before them of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasure possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. See, basically, he, he describes these two different types of people within Israel. One type are those who doubt God or have just decided that God is not trustworthy. They've decided God is not just. He says, look, look, evil is good. They accuse God of, of, of thinking that evil is good because they're not getting what they want. And so they say, God, you're not just. And then the other group of people are those who fear God and serve him as sons and daughters would serve their fathers. 
It's so interesting because Malachi says, what is God, how is God's posture toward those who fear him? He says that God hears them, they are remembered, and he spares them, and he calls them his treasured possessions. It's the very language that he speaks of them, that they don't treasure God, yet God treasures them. Like what an incredible thing. When you, when you feel treasured from someone, you, you, you wanna re- re- return that, don't you? But when you feel the opposite of treasured, when you feel devalued, when you feel little, You don't want to treasure that person. You might pursue their favor, but it's hard. Yet God basically says, look, you don't treasure me, but I call you my treasured possessions. You see, there will be, at at that time, he says, there will be a visible distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And here's what the visible distinction between the righteous and the wicked is. It's not how they talk. It's not the platitudes. It's not the social posturing. It is simply this. It is obedience to what God says. Or it is a quick turnaround to obedience. <laughs> like when God says, you've been divisive. And maybe our response is, how have we been divisive? <laughs> And that's been a a pretty normal conversation in recent days. Rather than recognizing the things that maybe we, how we are behaving or are characterizing us, we throw it back at God and say, well, how have we done that? But, But that's just our nature, isn't it? Because unless you have proof and you can give me an example, it's kind of like even, even in a relationship, you say, you know, you've hurt me. And it's, and typically, Maybe very infrequently, when, when, the, when someone has verbalized, you've hurt me, very infrequently, the first line out of their, their mouth is, I'm so sorry. It's typically, well, give me an example of how I've hurt you. <laughs> I, I, need to, I need to see how I've hurt you because, I'm, because honestly, I'm just not sure that it's me. I think you're just sensitive and weak. I mean, that's kind of how we act, isn't it? But, but we do that so often. And so really, the, 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 dif- the distinction between the wicked and, and the righteous is obedience and repentance. So that when God says, you've spoken against me, that our response is, God, whether we realize it or not, we are guilty and we are sorry. And, and we just want to repent. How can we be better? And, and, and so, so God says that there will be this visible distinction and it will be obedience. It won't be anything else. Because we can say a lot of things, but what matters is what we do. And, 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 and so, and so there's, then we go into verse chapter four. And in chapter four, God says this, he says, behold, the day is coming 
burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That's that refining fire of God that some will be consumed. That day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. He says here, but for you who fear my name, and listen to what he says, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And looking just at that verse, you see, a couple weeks ago I asked the question, is your confidence in who God is or in your evaluation of what God does or doesn't do? Where's your confidence? Where's your trust? And, and so what, what God says here is an incredibly encouraging thing. He says, the rising sun who is Jesus who brings light to darkness and security and danger. He says, will bring righteousness. This sun will bring beams of righteousness. In other words, Jesus will make things right. Between God and man, reconciliation, which he's already done. Between, between people and people, through the process of making us more like Jesus, through grace and humility and patience and love, towards one another, and he will make all wrongs right. He'll fix it all. And it says, with healing in his wings, in other words, that healing and hope at the dawn of a new day, he says, the righteous sun, that there's something about when dawn breaks, isn't there? There's something about a new day that even if we're in a hard time, that, that breaking of the sun gives us just this glimmer of hope that maybe today will be different. And he says that this rising sun of righteousness brings healing in his wings, that he will bring us to a place of wholeness and hope. And he says, and we will respond like calves leaping out of the stall, a stall that, that kind of is a, is a cage for a calf, and they come leaping out of the stall. That is a posture of, of excitement and freedom and joy. In other words, the sun of righteousness rising with healing and breaks us out of our fear with incredible joy. Like a calf running and jumping. And he goes on and he says this as he finishes his message to Israel. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. He says, remember the law of Moses. In other words, that's, that's another way of, of calling them to obedience. If you really wanna know the answer to the question, how do we return to you? When he says, you have, you have gone far from me. How, okay, well, how do we return then? Obedience. God's covenant, the relation 
the revelation of his love and his holiness. But, but there's this thing about God's victory and his mercy. Notice that it says Elijah will come giving this picture of John the Baptist who comes before the Messiah and then Jesus comes. But we know from scripture that he came once to die and be raised from the dead and ascend to heaven. And then he's coming a second time, which he hasn't come back yet, but he's coming back a second time. And, and here's what's awesome about that is that God precedes his wrath and his judgment with a call of mercy and an offer of forgiveness. God says, look, you, you've been wrong, you've rebelled, you've, you've done all these things. And I have every right to just say it's over. But instead what God does is he says, I will send my son and he'll die at your hands. Yet he'll raise from the dead and he'll ascend to the throne. And then you will have an opportunity for mercy. As bad as the world gets around us, we are living in the time of mercy, believe it or not. Because no matter how bad it gets around you, it doesn't hold a candle to eternal separation in hell from Jesus Christ. Doesn't even begin to compare. And, and, so, and so God gives us this opportunity, Jesus part one and Jesus part two, everything in between those two things is mercy filling. <laughs> is God giving us grace and opportunity and mercy and he says that the, the hearts of fathers will be turned to their children. And, and it's interesting because, because it kind of has this, this essence of the powerful and the vulnerable. Fathers had all the power in that culture and the children had no, no power whatsoever at all. So it's the powerful and the vulnerable, the protectors and the protected. And it's interesting that, that when he says this in, in the end, the very end of, of, of Malachi, it kind of is reminiscent of what Jesus prays later for his people, the family of God, to be in unity with one another and to love one another. That all of our hearts would be turned to one another and we would love. And that would actually be the sign, the evidence of God's power in the gospel. And, and, and so God turned his heart toward us and Jesus when he had no reason to, but the fact of his character and that he is an unchanging, covenant-keeping God. And so then we, in turn, turn our hearts toward him and toward one another while we pursue those who are lost. And so what's really cool about this passage is while it has some really hard things it also has some really incredibly great things. That, that God is working in a way in, in his mercy and his covenant-keeping ways for us that he gives us opportunity after opportunity. Because just like Israel, in a lot of ways our religion and our, and our politics have become corrupt. And God says, I want you to return to me. I want you to return to me. 
You see, here's the thing. You, are, you and I are not going to outthink the Lord and we are not going to outrun the enemy. And so what he calls us to do is to listen to and obey Jesus. It really does come down to obedience. And, 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 and so it's, it's interesting because I think we have such an incredible example of that in the Old Testament. In Genesis 22, if you're familiar with it, it's where God speaks to Abraham. And God had given Abraham a promise and he said, I will give you an, an offspring and I will make you a great nation. And so after a long period of time of waiting and questioning, God brings Abraham and Sarah, a son, Isaac, and then Isaac is a, is a young boy, and God says to, he comes to Abraham, and he says to Abraham in Genesis 22, he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to take him to this mount, mountain, and I want you to take him, and I want you to sacrifice him at an altar to me. Which at this point, without the hindsight of scripture, we're kind of like, who is this God? <laughs> So Abraham goes. He, he doesn't understand. He doesn't see how this is going to work in favor of fulfilling God's promises. But Abraham goes and he takes Isaac. And he goes to Mount Moriah and he goes and, and we know the story and he went to put Isaac on the altar and he raised his knife and God says, Abraham, stop. He says, now I know who you trust. Now I know that you'll obey. And, and God knew that all along, but he had to show Abraham because Abraham was chosen to be the father of the people of God. And God provides a ram in the thicket to be the sacrifice, which was God's plan all along. It's interesting, we read that story and we think, man, what, 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 was, it, what was it like for Isaac in that moment? But I can't help but wonder if in that passage, Abraham is a type of God and Isaac is a type for us. And it's interesting, in, in, Jew, in Jewish Midrash, which is kind of the ancient commentary on the Hebrew scriptures that are attached to biblical texts, um, they're not inspired like the word of God is inspired, but, but they are commentary from those ancient times that, that the religious leaders and those who studied and those who would pass down verbally and written the commentary about the law and the Hebrew scriptures. And it's interesting because there's, a, there's an, an ancient Jewish midrash that talks about this incident in Genesis 22. And like I said, this isn't inspired by the Holy Spirit like scripture is, but it's something to think about. In fact, it's something that the Apostle Paul was very familiar with because he studied the Hebrew scriptures because before he was, became converted to Christ, he was a Hebrew among Hebrews. Listen to what the Hebrew Midrash says about Genesis 22. It says, when Isaac saw that his father was about to sacrifice him, He said to him that since he was young, he feared that he might tremble when he saw the knife. And I will grieve you, Father, whereby the slaughter may be rendered unfit 
and this will not be counted as a real sacrifice. Therefore, bind me firmly so that I might not escape the altar. I can't help but think that as Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was penning Romans 12, chapter one, that he wrote, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, that Paul was not thinking about that writing about the Old Testament, where Isaac may have looked at his father and said, bind me tightly so that I don't get off this altar and I give my life in worship. How often when God asks us to stay on that altar, do we jump off and say, God, that's too costly. The essence of surrender is saying to God and trusting him with the results and saying, God, bind me tightly so that I don't blemish this offering, that I don't blemish this sacrifice. When Paul writes, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, just like Abraham and Isaac. And like Jesus, the joy set before us in surrendering our, our, surrendering our lives and what we need to do is resurrendering our lives over and over again. For the joy set before us is the participation in the work of Jesus Christ now and then participating in the rule of Christ later. We need to remember that right now we are not called to rule. We are called to participate in the work of Jesus Christ. And what is the work of Jesus Christ? It is redemption and reconciliation. And we can do that with or without power, with or without rights, with or without freedom. But I think we want to rule today rather than work. Jesus calls us to participate in the work that he's doing today with anticipation of ruling with him later. But right now, it's the work, not the rule. You see, the greater the surrender to Jesus, the greater our capacity to experience the joy in the here and now. Because when I recognize that I'm called to work with Jesus, that I can have joy that is not determined by my circumstances because I'm doing the work. Do you want joy in your life? You see, you and I are living in the time of mercy where God is calling us to participate in his work of redemption and preparing us to share in ruling his kingdom. And he's called us to work with him. What greater joy when you think about it, when you sacrifice something for someone you love, it brings you joy even though it was difficult, doesn't it? And it is so easy for us to forget that when we sacrifice ourselves 
and our stuff for Jesus, that it brings us unspeakable joy. It's very different than sacrificing for someone that doesn't deserve it. <laughs> because when we sacrifice for those who don't deserve it in our opinions, it's not a joy, is it? It's something we wanna hold over them later. <laughs> but when we sacrifice for someone we love and trust, it brings us joy like nothing else can bring us. And so as we prepare ourselves for celebrating Christmas. This is the world that Jesus was born into. A corrupt religious and political system in Israel. And Jesus' light broke through, calling them to repentance, calling them to surrender, calling them to joy. I don't think we're that unlike the first century. I don't think we look that different. And so Jesus gives us the same call. Malachi gives us the same call. John gives the same call. To repent, to resurrender, and to obey Jesus. I wanna invite the prayer team to come forward. If you need prayer this morning, if you want somebody to pray with you, I would invite you to come up and pray with those people. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for your love. God, I thank you that you gave everything for us. God, yet we so easily cling to the things of this world the, the, the structures that give us comfort and make us feel like we have a kingdom. God, I thank you for, for loving us through that and being a covenant-keeping God, an unchanging God. And even in the moments that we don't understand what you're calling us to do, God, that we would trust you. Like Abraham. And we would surrender ourselves like Isaac. God, that we would stop arguing with you when you tell us what we're acting like. But we would repent and we would give everything and open our lives up to receive the joy that you offer us. So Father, I pray that as we head into the Christmas season that has so many things vying for our attention and our loyalty and our love, that God, we would be focused and that you would refine us in the ways that we need to be refined. God, I thank you for these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.